Welcome to Power Players by Orgis, critical thinking to deliver the promise of clean energy. This program brings you leading voices in solar and energy storage and sectors impacting renewables, exploring challenges and solutions for industry growth, the true cost of operating and maintaining power plants, and system asset management considerations. My name is Josh Corbett. I welcome you to this episode hosted by Michael Lyman, Managing Director of Orgis Services. All right, today on Power Players, uh, we've got another great episode. We're going to be talking about supply chain. We've never really addressed that, uh, not directly anyway. We've always talked about the finance, we've talked about operations, but none of this stuff happens without all the equipment and really focusing on making sure that we have the things we need, not just to build, but to maintain these plants over time. And so today we're going to talk about supply chain. And who better to talk about supply chain than Chris Galden? Chris is the Vice President of Supply Chain for Orgis Energy, which really looks at sustainment activities and operations and throughout the 30, 40 year life and all the way back to what do we need at the very beginning of these sites to make sure that we can build them and, and deploy them and deliver on the promise of, of solar for the industry. Uh, Chris has a long, long background. You, you, you were previously at Microsoft, right? You were the Director of Supply Chain Operations for the Azure Cloud group is that right did i say that right you did uh that's the okay. uh, cloud group at microsoft and uh responsible for deploying all the equipment in the data centers that was i mean that's a huge job you were there from 17 to 22 and that included like 250 data centers globally it was a big operation yes and uh it's what drives microsoft's cloud globally supports the data management of several countries militaries uh, it's a very big, uh, high reliability operation. Man, that's a big job. I mean, prior to that, and you and I first ran across each other at SunPower, where you you headed up the uh, sustainment operation, sustainment activities for the operations part of the company, and also worked supply chain with the balance of systems. That's right. Uh, SunPower is where I got into renewables. I'd previously been in electronics manufacturing, and uh, it was a refreshing change of pace, and uh, it was exciting move to be able to uh, be part of the renewable revolution. Well, you know, with 20 plus years of experience in electronics manufacturing and renewables, you know, I'm glad you came back to solar, you know, from Microsoft after after going back a little bit into that, you came back into renewables and you're helping to uh, helping to drive solar adoption, which is, I think, a good thing. It's good to be back. It feels like we do with our time. (laughs) What an exciting uh, growth area right now. It's uh, it's good to be on the upswing. Well, welcome to Power Players, Chris. Let's let's start today um, to talk about some of the big changes that have been happening recently and sort of see if uh, for some of our folks, we can lay out some clear strategies on how to address it. Sure. We have this thing called the IRA, right? Uh, That came out recently. And of course, you know, we always look at supply chain holistically, like we said, going from really the earliest days of planning all the way out through the last day of shutting a plant down. But the IRA really sort of focuses in a few key areas. Can you can you talk us talk to us a little bit about how the IRA and what specifics are affecting sort of supply chain strategy? Sure. The biggest part of the IRA or Inflation Reduction Act are the tax incentives it offers 
for building solar power plants or renewable uh, energy plants with a high level of domestic content. I think one of the big goals of this administration and our country overall is energy independence. And that means being able to build and manufacture the materials needed for a solar or a renewable energy plant here in the United States. So the government as uh, part of the Inflation Reduction Act set a uh, set of domestic content requirements that peak around 55% of the cost of a material cost of a new operation. And if you can meet those domestic contents, Mike, they're willing to offer you a, a 10% uh, tax credit. Well, so, wait, well, wait, well, wait a minute though. 55% is a big number. I thought uh, the, you know, I thought, tax equity investment was targeting that 30% as part of, I mean, I knew the IRA rebased it at 30%. How do you go from 30 to 55? Well, it starts at uh, 40% uh, for material cost of domestic content. So if you can achieve 40% this year and next, then they're willing to offer the tax credits. And then it escalates at 5% a year, uh, culminating mm -hmm. in the uh, 27 period at 55% uh, domestic content. Okay, so let me understand this. So we start at 30%, right? That's the tax credit that the IRA set. To go from 30 to 40, you have to hit what? Uh, to go from 30 to 40, you have to hit 40% domestic content uh, for- Got it, okay. Got it. And then what's that next? How do you go from 40 to 55? So what the government did is to incentivize and reflect the fact that the supply chain and the infrastructure is not there yet to meet those higher level percents. So they put an escalator in so that every year an additional 5% is added to the target culminating at 55% where the ideal goal is to get a renewable plant to have at least 55% of the material cost be sourced in the United States in order to get that extra rebate. So 30 to 40, you can achieve if you can hit 40% domestic content, 40 upwards to 55 is if you can drive towards a higher number of domestic content that's all in the US, all the manufacturing, like what is that? What does that number look like? Do we well, know? What the number looks like, if you look at like a solar plant, you have the modules, the trackers, the EBOS and the inverters, you know, are kind of the core. So the first part of the IRA and domestic content says, we wanna make sure you're using US steel. That's an industry uh, that the government is interested in protecting for a lot of good reasons. So before you even start calculating, you know, what percentage of material content do I have? The first hurdle is I have to use all domestic steel. So for any non-manufactured good, which would be the piles, the rebar and pads, that's got to be U.S. steel. So that's your first qualifier. The second is to look at the other materials, the modules, the EBOS, the inverters. And the government published guidance that gave us kind of an understanding of how they want to go about calculating how much percentage of a particular item uh, uh, is domestic content. If you look at a solar panel, Mike, for example, uh, we have companies like Q-Cells in Atlanta that's making uh, panels, but the panel is assembled in the United States. All of the material that goes into it is sourced externally. So in those cases, you don't get any credit. They don't consider assembly work to be domestic content. 
So what the government did is in their guidance, they said, we want to go down one tier in the bill of materials. And that's where we're going to use costs to calculate uh, whether or not that's considered domestic. So if I look at a panel, I have the cell, I have the frame, the glass, uh, and associated smaller part of the J-box, those kind of things. So the government says, well, is the, is the uh, cell built in the U.S.? Well, if it is, the cell makes up, uh, you know, 30 or so percent of the panel. And so if you have a U.S. cell in that panel, then you get that credit. And now you're starting to build toward uh, having domestic content. If you look at a tracker, a uh, tracker consists of the controller, the torque tubes and the mounting hardware. Uh, if that's using U.S. steel sourced in the United States, uh, if that is including controllers and other parts made in the United States, now I can start adding the bulk of that tracker cost to my domestic content. And the way the math works is you uh, take the domestically sourced content as your numerator, add up all those costs. You take the total cost of the material and you numerator divided by denominator, and that gives you a domestic content percent. So if I have a panel that's 100% domestic content, it's a uh, you know, 35 cent per watt panel and 35 cents a watt of that is sourced in the United States. That's 100% domestic content. So Chris, I, I get what you're saying, but like I have to quote Chevy Chase and spies like us and say, I was told there would be no math, right? That's a lot. So let's back it up just a little bit and talk about why this matters. And then let's jump back into the details and we'll just take it step by step because so much at one time, I mean, I'm not big enough to, I'm not smart enough to catch it. I'm sure other people are, but let's, you know, for my sake, let's dumb it down. So it occurs to me that, that you said you're talking about other countries, U.S. content, domestic content, where you get the manufacturing. That to me sounds like a geopolitical, you know, problem set. And, and I don't know that in our industry, people really look at it that way. And it, you know, geopolitical impacts on supply chain uh, are pretty major these days. I mean, we saw that all through COVID. So, you know, what do people need to think about when they lift their head up from their day to day and want to prepare, prepare for the future? How do they need to look at geopolitics and how that affects it? Well, I think the best way to look at geopolitics is it's an ever-changing situation. Uh, you know, the current uh, uh, key focus, I think, for a lot of supply chain managers in positions like myself are the challenges with China. China is a huge manufacturing center. Uh, they are the bulk of the capacity for solar, whether it's modules and other parts. And as we see tensions rise between the West and China, there's a risk now that that supply chain can get disrupted. So as a supply now, chain, I don't now wait a minute. I don't want to be negative on China. I don't want this to get doxxed or anything. I don't want, you know, but uh I don't think it's a an anti-China thing. That's not the message I think we're trying to to say. The reality is is the United States and China and all these other powers are doing what they need to do, and all of us little people are left to react. So so how do how do we need to react or proact? In this instance. I think you need to react by making sure you're fully diversified. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, Mike. Uh, you know, a certain geography like China can present a lot of low cost opportunities that are very appealing. Mm -hmm. But if 
go all in and then geopolitics hit, uh, it could put you and your supply chain at risk. So making sure you're taking a step back, taking a diverse approach to your sourcing strategy and not putting all your eggs in one specific region. And it's more than just geopolitics. It can be uh, weather-related, tsunami. If you have all your production in a uh, high-risk area, there's earthquake or some other natural event, you can end up wiping out your entire supply chain and put your company at risk. So uh, I always recommend a diversified supply chain where you're across multiple regions and blending those costs together. You may be a little bit higher than just sourcing at the lowest cost, but you're assuring supply for a long period of time. So got it. He is diversification. And I understand that. But let's Go back to what you were saying earlier. You mentioned panels, trackers, EBOS, inverters. Those are like kind of the top four, would you say, in the, in the list? Uh, storage to plays a big piece, but uh, storage is going to be very battery contingent. But when you look at like a traditional uh, site, you know, you're looking at your modules, your inverter, et cetera. And then achieving a domestic content goal means doing the math of how much of that is produced in the United States and does that equal the targets that the government set in order to receive the benefits of those tax credits? Well, tell you what, let's go commodity by commodity. Let's leave batteries out for just a moment. I mean, we have to have content for future power players or what am I gonna do with my time, right? But let's start maybe with panels, right? So looking at panels within the context of the IRA, how much impact do they have? And what do uh, developers, owners, you know, people planning on sites, people buying panels, what do they need to think about and look at? Are they just supposed to diversify and have as many different suppliers as possible? That's, I mean, that doesn't seem like a good idea, like in that case, but like, how, how does this apply to panels? Well, panels, first of all, are the key to hitting the government targets uh, to get Why the that? tax rebates. Because, you know, if you look at the cost of a solar site, for example, Panels make up 35% of the total project cost or 60 or more percent wait, of the wait, material. Wait, say that again. How much of the total project cost? The panels are about 30 to 35% of the total project cost. Wow. Okay. And then you said it was 65% of the construction cost. Or can 65% of the material cost when I strip out your EPC labor and permitting and those type of uh, 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 costs associated with a buildup, and I'm just looking at the material, then the panel is 65% of the total site cost in terms of materials. So 65% of the local content problem set that's being sort of highlighted and addressed by the IRA and compensated by the IRA falls under one commodity, the panel. Exactly. All right. That's a big number. How it do is. you get it? How do you go get it? How do you do that? Well, the first step is uh, with the incentives, you're seeing a bow wave of companies looking to open up operations in the United States. You know, Mike, since 2020, there's been $11 billion of investments uh, by panel manufacturers for new facilities in the United States. That's growing daily. I don't think you can pick up a renewable energy magazine right now and not read about a new announcement of somebody coming to the United States. So working with them, finding out who's got serious plans, who's just looking for, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
something that's not going to materialize. And then being able to work and partner with somebody who's going to take this seriously and be a good uh, manufacturing partner going forward uh, is probably your best way to assure your supply of domestic panels. Uh, and of course, leveraging the existing suppliers that are already in the United States. So point being is you've got to partner with somebody who's going to have a footprint and capacity in the United States. Okay, so I mean, uh, you know, forgive me pointing out a conflict here, but a minute ago you said diversify, and now you said partner. I'm a little confused. Well, you want to diversify. Uh, for example, not every site you build may be a candidate to achieve that domestic content mm. for a variety of reasons. So in those cases, I want to have my diverse supply chain. On the other hand, because of the tax incentives, I can uh, uh, you know, make a lot more uh, return on my renewable energy investment if I take advantage of those credits. And that's where you can choose to partner with a few key players that are going to be manufacturing in the United States. But won't, but won't that drive those projects in the first category that don't have that and by definition don't have the additional tax benefits? Are those projects going to be built? Uh, I think so. You know, there's a ton of opportunity and growth in the renewable space. They're going to be built. They're just not going to necessarily get that tax credit. So there's still a lot of demand for renewable energy, but not everything is going to qualify for that tax credit. So that's where your diversification comes into place is where I'm not going to achieve that tax credit. I want to get the lowest possible cost possible. However, in cases where I can get that credit, now I want to assure domestic supply, and it can be worth paying a small premium in order to get there. Because I get the benefit of that tax credit, even though a panel may cost slightly more built in the United States than in a low-cost geography, uh, that tax incentive makes it worth it. That's going to build the infrastructure up in the United States. And as that infrastructure and you know, manufacturing capability, hopefully you get economy of scale and they're able to drive and achieve pricing that uh, is similar to what you see out of Asia in the future. So forgive me, I'm, I'm trying to connect dots here a little bit. This is a complicated subject. And if I got it, if, if, if I have it wrong, tell me. I don't mind being wrong. It happens multiple times a day. Just check with my wife. But, uh, you know, you say diversification and like plan for projects that will get it, plan for projects that won't, you know, that makes you wonder about whether projects that won't get it, you know, will even happen. But but it seems to me that the way to sort of look at it at it through the supply chain lens, because this isn't a finance discussion, is is to is to understand that maybe those projects that don't have that uh, the full tax credit, meaning they're not at fifty five or forty, but maybe they're just at thirty, gives you an opportunity to go for uh, maybe non U.S. made only, in some cases lower cost, to still make those projects make sense. And so the different tax benefits for the different projects sort of define different supply chain strategies and then allow you to understand sort of where they fit versus just assuming one will happen or not with a with a one size fits all approach to all projects. That's a great I'm point. I'm not sure if what I said makes sense, but I'm trying to ask a complex question. Tell me, what do you think? Well, you did, and that's what it comes down to is decision tree. Is my project uh, have a shot at uh, qualifying for domestic content? 
if it doesn't, if, you know, there's no way I'm going to get there for uh, various reasons, well, then I would think you want your focus to be on cost. And you're going to want to build that as uh, uh, least expensive as possible with high quality and reliability so you maximize the return on that renewable asset. If a project is going to qualify, meaning you can get to that uh, 40 to 55 percent threshold of domestic content, well, now there may be cases where I do want to pay a premium for, uh, you know, U.S. labor is higher than a lot of other geographies. That's no secret. So, but because I get that 10 percent tax credit, I have some wiggle room, and now it may be worth the incentives in order to you get, you know, buy from a domestic source. Maybe you pay a premium, but I'm going to get those tax benefits. So if I do have a site that can qualify, I want to explore and be able to take advantage of domestic content and drive that process. Got it. So, you know, it seems to connect another dot here, which seems to be what I'm doing on this one. This is a difficult uh, conversation, you know, for me especially. Uh, but so what you're telling me then is the IRA, I think there's been a lot in the news about the IRA being about stimulating the renewables industry, but the renewables industry pulls from some very traditional industries like steel, glass, electronics, which benefit other industries like automotive and right. consumer electronics and things like that, most of which has, a lot of which has moved overseas. So by adding an additional incentive Yes, it goes to the renewable industry, but by adding an additional incentive, that that uh, tax credit flows money through the renewables industry to traditional industries that are man that are providing that service or that commodity in the United States, thereby pushing money into those traditional industries as well. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's why I think is a very important part of the IRA is renewable energy is leading the way. But at some point, the IRA, the tax credits are going to expire and those industries and factories have to survive on their own. And then being able to branch out into those other industries, maybe you're you know, buying U.S. glass and now it can be used in other applications, other industries. Uh, the technology to develop a solar cell can possibly be used in the semiconductor industry and others. So as you build up that renewable energy infrastructure, I think the key companies that are going to survive uh, well beyond the IRA tax credits are going to be the ones that look outside and make sure how do I leverage this capability I have across multiple industries. So for the average American that maybe isn't in renewables or maybe has been getting a lot of mixed signals about renewables, the key about the IRA is not giving money away to renewables. The key about the IRA is stimulating an entire network of supply chain that feeds a whole bunch of other traditional industries, including oil and gas, and is ultimately about, from what I hear you saying, jobs, jobs, jobs. Jobs, 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 and independence. You know, right now there's certain commodities and uh, industries that are 100% reliant on uh, foreign supply. And so by driving this, kind of forcing us as Americans to take a step back and saying, hey, is that short-term cost benefit of sourcing from an international 
really going to drive and be long-term sustainable. If I can't, uh, you know, import from a certain area or a certain country, well, now I could shut down entire industries as we saw during COVID. And so uh, rebuilding that infrastructure in the United States, re-incentivizing uh, the growth has a lot of benefits. It's jobs, it's uh, technology, it's uh, ability to act independently. And so there's a lot of benefits to bringing some of those industries back to the United States and renewables is a great way to lead the charge. Got it. Hey, look, I'm a big fan. Jobs is big. It's good for everybody. It should be a, it shouldn't be a political, uh, you know, football. Everybody needs jobs, right? So, now, I want to go back to the 65% number and uh, that you said for panels because you mentioned a few other things and let's so I want to maybe knock off a couple of others there. Sure. What about trackers? You mentioned trackers. Like trackers, how much of that what what's the effect there and how do you go about it? Well, trackers make up about 9 or 10% of a project cost but 17 to 20% of the material cost. So again, if I'm trying to hit across an entire project, 55% domestic content, well, my first stop, if I just sort you know, top to bottom descending, panels is the first area I need to focus. The second most expensive part on a solar site is the trackers. So how can I buy a tracker that's going to uh, uh, help me achieve a high percentage of domestic content to get my entire project over that 55% threshold? Did you say how, are you asking me, how can you, how can you? Well, that's the question. And, uh, <laughs> Please tell me that, that was rhetorical because I don't know the answer. <laughs> Sorry, the uh, uh, big tracker suppliers are all, uh, many already have domestic supplies for steel and other things because of the cost of freight. But uh, what you're seeing is kind of a, a, a re-energization of bringing other materials back to the United States mm. so they can hit a higher level of threshold. And what we're seeing is, uh, uh, you know, your big players in the uh, tracker space, your next tracker, Game Change, ATI, are all looking at their supply chains and asking, how can I assure I hit these domestic contents and give my customers the flexibility between cost and domestic content to hit their needs? So, uh, again, you're seeing a resurgence in demand for domestic steel. Uh, domestic transformation capabilities, as well as circuit board assembly, motors, things like that, as the big tracker guys go look and uh, identify ways where they can meet the developer's needs by hitting that high level of domestic content. Interesting. Okay, so by the numbers, you told me panels, construction, 65%. You said, I'm going to pick one number because I can't remember multiple ones. Like that's, you know, come on, we're talking about me. So uh, trackers, you said were 15 to 20, we're gonna go with 20. So now I'm at 85%. So let's move on to the next thing that you mentioned earlier. You said EBOS. First of all, what is EBOS? EBOS. Second of all, what about that? Uh, electronic balance system. This is all the wiring and hardware that connect the panels together and connect the rows uh, to the inverters. Uh, this makes up about 10% of the project uh, material cost, not the total project cost, but the materials used in the project. And that's another opportunity to increase your domestic percentages. 
and uh, having flexibility, you know, you may have a panel supplier that say has a 50% domestic content. So uh, that's 50% of 65% of the total cost. So now I need a few other things to get me above the line to hit my total uh, uh, target. So something like EBOS using domestically produced uh, connectors, wiring, uh, can help give you an extra tool in your tool belt to get over that threshold and uh, achieve that uh, domestic target. Um, just as a quick side question, not to distract completely, but it occurs to me we've been talking about domestic content these, this entire time, and I've recently uh, traveled to Canada, and, and it occurs to me we've got, you know, trading relationships with Canada and Mexico. How, how do those relationships like NAFTA play into consideration under domestic content? Do they? How, what's the effect there? As of right now, no. Uh, now, everything is always being lobbied and debated, but uh, right now, NAFTA is not being factored. Domestic content truly means made in the uh, United States and its territories. So one of the things we were looking at before this guidance came out was, would, would uh, uh, you know, Mexican uh, produced material qualify for the IRA tax credit? Would Canadian, you know, their partners are close uh, trade trading partners with us, but uh, the latest uh, guidance that came out said no, those would not be included toward that domestic content target. I remember some years ago, I, I know the medical industry uh, set up a lot of manufacturing in Puerto Rico because they had tax benefits for doing so, and it occurs to me that since Canada doesn't count, Mexico doesn't count, domestic content does, that places like Puerto Rico even places like American Samoa, I mean, maybe there's maybe there's opportunities for them. I would hope so. Uh, those would all uh, be considered domestic, and uh, they could probably use the investment. Uh, I haven't seen much going into any of those, but uh, it's certainly something you'd want to keep in mind. Hey, jobs, 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 right? That's right. All right. So I'm a little, you know, going back to the list that I had written down, there was a fourth category uh, that I have down here, and it says inverters. Talk to me about inverters. So the inverter uh, or central inverter converts the DC uh, uh, energy coming off the solar panel to AC for transmission. Uh, in a utility, you're looking at central inverters, and they make up about 5 to 7% of the material cost of a solar utility site. So that's another opportunity for domestic content. Currently, Mike, in the United States, there's very little production of inverters. Most of them are coming offshore already. But uh, again, as you look at you know, what percentage of some of these bigger items like modules and trackers are going to be domestic versus foreign, uh, there's an opportunity with uh, potential investment in the United States to open inverter plants to give you that extra 5%, 10% uh, to be able to claim domestic content. That's going to be a very challenging one. So I personally, I'm a little skeptical that uh, uh, inverter manufacturing in the United States is going to uh, truly come raging back. But, uh, you know, it gives us just one more lever and uh, uh, gets us that much closer to hitting that domestic target. So five to seven percent on the inverter is what I said. 
I can't go seven because that puts us at 102 by my uh, by my uh, you know public well, math. Mike, sometimes you run into cost overruns. 102 uh, <laughs> percent uh, might not be that bad, but uh, yeah, more like five then, and uh, we'll end at an even hundred somewhere in that range, right? Do we have U.S. inverter manufacturers today? Uh, there, I believe a, a smaller player, EPC, uh, has a facility in the United States. But uh, the one uh, I used a lot, SMA, had a facility in Colorado that closed it a couple of years ago. And your big players are uh, all uh, importing from offshore. So a lot of work to be done there just to get them a into domestic A lot of work to be content. done there, but I've had some great conversations. And uh, a lot of key companies are, are sharpening their pencils and looking at what it would be like. Uh, to move that back, you get some logistics savings, what other incentives may be available. So uh, I'm excited to see uh, uh, big players in that space uh, uh, strongly considering uh, reopening or, or opening U.S. manufacturing. But when they do that, if they build it here, but a lot of the pieces, parts, commodities still come from overseas, like how does that, you know, how does that calculate in domestic content when the suppliers and the sub-suppliers, you may be able to manufacture it here, but there's still, many of them are coming from overseas. Well, you're right. And you touched on a key point. You know, one of the things that came through in this guidance of how you're going to hit domestic content is the government's looking for real content, not just assembly. In other industries that uh, I worked in in my years in electronics, uh, there was almost a game being played where you build something offshore, you ship it to the United States, perform some minor tweak. You know, I test it here. Value I put a, add, right? I put a value <laughs> add in. I test it. And now yeah. I can argue, well, uh, you know, I've now hit 51% of the labor content of this computer or whatever. Uh, so now I can slap a Made in America sticker on it and feel better about myself. The government's caught on to that. And so what they're looking for is that next level down. As I mentioned earlier, it's not enough to just assemble an inverter in the United States or a module. They want the components in that to be sourced in the United States. And that's where you're going to run into challenges in the inverter space. And even in modules, there's you know very little uh, cell production in the United States. Glass, aluminum can be expensive. And so I look to see big investments in those spaces to help drive that content up. You know, one big area, Mike, is, uh, you know, this time last year, you were seeing a lot of announcements of companies opening uh, module assembly plants in the United States. And they're having to go back and rethink because with this guidance that came out and saying, no, uh, having it assembled in the United States gets you zero credit. You, you don't get any points for that. It's the cell, it's the glass, it's the frame. Those are what's going to give you that domestic content uh, uh, dollars to put in your numerator. And so uh, it's really driving a deep investment, not just a, oh, I put a sticker on it and uh, now it's made in America. So what I'm hearing here, uh, because of what the government has done to how to qualify as domestic content, it really is, th this legislation really is a flow through measure, which pushes money and opportunity, not necessarily into sustainment, I mean, into uh, renewables, but into 
the the sub supply commodity level of the supply chain so that you've got to bring in the commodities, the steel, the copper, the chips. You know, you've got to look at mining. You've got to look at uh, refining. All of those things have to come back. That sounds like it's going to take a long time. But what I'm hearing is that the IRA stimulates across a wide swath of, of frankly, our, our economy as a whole. Is that right? Well, I think it is. Now, it's not quite exactly right, and I don't mean to contradict, because Please the do. government right now is only looking one tier down. So, like, if you look at a module, they're not looking at where that polysilicon is sourced. They're saying, was that cell, that's the next level down, was that cell made in America? And if it is, I get to add that uh, cost to my numerator. Uh, but not the silicon mines, not the not bauxite for the mine. aluminum, not the... Yet. Yet. Got it. And, you know, you're seeing like uh, there are a few domestic poly suppliers and uh, I think they're being reinvigorated because, you know, is that going to be the next step, Mike? In the future, are they going to continue to drill down further into that bill of materials to say, no, I do want the copper. I do want the uh, uh, polysilicon. Right now, it's just focused on steel. As I mentioned uh, previously, you can't pass go without having uh, U.S. steel for your piles and rebar and what they call non-manufactured goods. But for my manufactured goods, they're only going to look one tier down. So in the case of uh, modules, it's going to be the cells. In the case of inverters, you know, my IGBTs, things like that. So uh, hopefully uh, the government uses that as a tool to help incentivize and not just make it impossible to get there over time. Got it. Well, so, you know, we've been talking for a while about a fairly complicated subject. And I, I know that, you know, based on my ability to follow, we're probably about here. So we're gonna end this out soon so that I have a little time to digest this and figure out what else to ask. Uh, but this is great information. But before we do, I, I do wanna talk briefly, you know, uh, Orgis Services and, and the other operators like Orgis Services, we kind of live in that 30 to 40 year life of the projects. And everything we've talked about has been at the beginning, like, you know, that that's about what goes into the construction. But we also have to maintain these projects. We have to deliver on this promise, the promise of clean energy, right? And so how does supply chain apply to sustainment activities for operations and even like repower and things like that? What do we need to think about there? How do we prepare for that even way back at the beginning? Well, that's a good one, uh, and we're starting to see it. I was, uh, Mike, the other day reading some wooden Mac forecasts of uh, inverter demands in the United States, and I had to do a double take. The demand for inverters was higher than the forecast for installed PV, and I'm like, wait a minute. Hey. Did they just make a mistake or what? And uh, the good folks at Wooden Mac reminded me, no, you're starting to see re-energizing demand. So, you know, when you but think solar's of- new. solar's new, right? I mean, I thought it's a new thing. It's a new technology. Everybody's, I see on the news, people talk about it's not proven. This is a new technology. It's not real. I mean, if that's the case, why would, and they're 30, 40 year assets, why would you need to be putting money in? That doesn't make any sense. Well, solar installations that were installed in the 2005 type period, 
uh, are now 15 years old. They're looking at 20 years old coming up. And uh, as you age, you kind of hit an exponential curve where stuff starts. Hey, don't be hurtful. Don't be hurtful about the aging now. I realize I'm looking older, but don't go there just now. (laughs) Well, I think it happens to all of us, including solar (laughs) power plants, Mike. And as they start age, uh, uh, you start seeing major repair bills. And at a certain point, it's time to go, uh, you know, take that inverter off life support and put in a new one. And so in the uh, uh, sustainment space, you're starting to see some older plants uh, that are going to really need some refurbishment to maintain, whether it's replacing inverters, panels, you know, after 20 years in the ground, your posts may be starting to rot a bit or starting to lean. And now it's time to go back and, you know, really invest more in that plant. And so on the sustainable side, you're uh, starting to see some of the older plants require a lot more maintenance than they have in the past. And a rethink and re-engineering to go say, hey, at what point do I take this inverter off life support and quit swapping parts every week and instead just go buy a whole new inverter and put it in? And how do I justify those costs? So a lot of data to be analyzed, but uh, you are starting to see O&M costs or sustainability costs uh, uh, on older plants become to the forefront. And uh, I have to make those decisions of, do you retire the plant? Do you continue on life support? Or do I start uh, replacing uh, key and expensive parts? I would assume that that decision is largely financial. Some of those older PPAs are are quite high. And so as costs have come down, it seems to me that like, even though you're having to put money in in the middle of the life, it may be worth it. I think so. And that's why... uh, you know, Wooden Mac and others are forecasting high demand for new inverters. Uh, you know, and I think you'll start seeing that in the panel space and others, because not only do we have to support all the PV growth in the United States, but for the plants that are starting to age, I got to uh, also support and have a supply chain to go support that refurbishment. Got it. Well, I feel like there's a lot for us to talk about, and uh, maybe we can do some more episodes of of Power Players. You know, maybe you'd like to do some. I think that would be fantastic. So, but let's, let's maybe wrap this up for today. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, my final thoughts are, again, uh, you know, one, supply chain, uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about as a field, but uh, truly a differentiator and, you know, something that uh, is really adding value in the development space. And I'm seeing more and more companies, and this isn't just for my own self-aggregation, but I'm seeing more and more companies make the investment in seeing supply chain as a differentiator. And then balancing the complexities, you know, some of the things we didn't get into is on top of making sure, can I get my domestic tax credits and maximize my return? But there's also a lot of other hurdles out there right now. We have the concerns around forced labor and uh, countries that are potentially uh, uh, using forced labor to produce materials used in renewable energy. We have concerns around anti-dumping or what we call the auction case or ADCBD to assure that, uh, you know, you don't have a situation where uh, companies are just creating false shells and shipping material out of China to avoid tariffs uh, through a third country. 
And so there's a lot of regulatory hurdles in the renewable space that we didn't get a chance to touch on, but they're all top of mind. And uh, the successful organization is going to be the one that navigates those, puts the proper controls into place, the proper traceability, and assures that their supply chain is robust and diverse and not just focused purely on lowest cost. Though that's a tough one to beat. We all want to make sure and meet our savings targets. Let me tell you, man, you, you you added a bunch of new stuff there at the end and I was trying to close it out. So I'm gonna put a I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pin. Let's get uh, to that next time. Those, and let's cut let's get to them next time. But for this time, Chris, I want to thank you for joining us on Power Players. Uh wow, you know, this is great information. I hope the people that are listening or watching this uh got a lot out of it because I know I did. Thank you for joining us. You are indeed a power player and I look forward to our, our next conversations or maybe some conversations that you lead yourself. Well, thank you, Mike. You have a great day. Thank you. You too now. Find summary thoughts on this topic and more insights into operating your clean energy assets at OrgisServices.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Players by Orgis, critical thinking to deliver the clean energy promise.